This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for May 6th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this week I'd like to look at COVID-19 therapy. There are a lot of treatments being used, but very little data to support most of them. I think as of today, the only published large placebo-controlled trial has been of the combination drug lopinavir-ritonavir. That was a study done very early in the outbreak. What have we learned since? Well, Steve, I think I'd start with the fact that that lopinavir trial was an extremely important trial because it showed that we could do this type of research even in the setting of a public health emergency. So it sort of laid the groundwork for any further studies. Unfortunately, the result was rather disappointing. The combination drugs uh, didn't really have much of an effect, but still it showed that we should be able to do more. And Eric, I think that it is amazing that the study was initiated in January, completed end of February. At the time that the epidemic was on the significant upswing in China, in Wuhan, in that area, and with incredible amount of uncertainty as to what was going on. The virus had just been identified. The syndrome was just being characterized. So I agree, the ability of those investigators to rapidly organize and initiate the trial is quite amazing and does set the bar for the kinds of studies that we as a community should be doing and is possible to do, even in the chaos of an emerging epidemic. That's why, in part, it's been disappointing that the pace of research has been quite slow since that time. Uh, these investigators were able to do it under unbelievable circumstances, and yet we only just have our newest RCT published earlier this week, actually. So what caused that drought with randomized controlled trials? Well, I think a couple of things. I think that some of the Chinese investigators were well set up to do them. However, the number of patients declined. And so a lot of the planned studies either couldn't go forward or couldn't be completed. And we'll talk about one of those that had to end prematurely. And I think that we in Europe and the US didn't anticipate well enough what was going to happen. And with a sudden increase in patients, research kind of got left on the sideline. There weren't mechanisms in place to rapidly come up with trials and get them through the regulatory process and set them in motion. And part of that, Eric, I think is also in the setting of the rapid upswing of the epidemic, the severity of illness, the overwhelming complexity of urgent life-saving care needed to be delivered at medical centers. We often get lost in the care of our patients in relation to research or investigation to know how to care for our patients. And I think that's a false dichotomy. And it's one that we as a community have to take a good hard look at because care not based on evidence may not always be good care. And how do we integrate the need to do systematic investigation to know what actually is beneficial versus null or potentially harmful? Because all medications have side effects. And we in this country, and around the world have been struggling with what care to provide our patients with SARS-CoV-2 because we want to do something, even though we may not know if it's good or bad. And so I agree with you, the trial of lopinavir-ritonavir, though having a result that none of us wanted, 
was incredibly important to help set the stage for at least one medication in that format at that point in illness did not offer benefit, and we needed to more systematically determine what does work. That trial aside, most of the evidence we've been seeing to date has been from case series and observational trials. What can we learn from those observational studies? Well, I think it depends on the study. Uh, Many of the studies that we've seen have used different comparison groups, and the comparisons are really important. For example, those studies that use historical controls, which is a common way of controlling for effects, are doing so in a changing epidemic when the baseline treatment of patients is changing. And I think that outcomes have improved over the course of the epidemic as physicians have learned to manage these patients. And therefore, historical controls just aren't that good. We saw that during the Ebola outbreak as care improved. And I think we are likely seeing that during the COVID-19 outbreak right now. Still, with the best efforts to produce a control group, you can learn some things, a broad idea of efficacy and harm, and certainly something perhaps about the adverse effects associated with any drug. I think that observational data, Steve, can be incredibly valuable in conditions where we know pretty clearly what the outcome is. For example, rabies. Not that there aren't reported cases of survivors, but for the most part, when an individual develops the clinical manifestations of rabies, the outcome is pretty universal. We know this with advanced cancer. So there are cases where observational data may be the best you can do because the underlying condition is so clearly understood. The challenge with SARS-CoV-2 is that the majority of cases we think may be asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, and the majority of cases that become symptomatic get better. Therefore, the ability to determine of those who become seriously ill what proportion will turn around and get better versus progress in the context of improving background standard of care gets very complicated, which is why properly controlled trials are necessary to understand the effect of a novel medication. And we have to set up the structures to be able to do that. And observational data can provide insight, but given medications are given for a reason, not randomly, minimizing that kind of bias in observational data continues to be a challenge. A report's been published this week on an observational trial of hydroxychloroquine, either with or without azithromycin. What do we learn from that work? Well, let me just start by summarizing what this group did. They looked at the outcomes of patients admitted to a single institution in New York. And it was at a time when the guidelines within the hospital recommended hydroxychloroquine for patients who were sufficiently hypoxemic, who had oxygen saturations below 94%. However, clinicians could use their discretion as to whether or not to use it. And in addition, several physicians chose to add the drug azithromycin, which has been touted to work in combination with hydroxychloroquine. They followed the patients for a median of more than 22 days and recorded whether or not they became intubated or died and that was their composite endpoint, either intubation or death. And they found that when they treated with either hydroxychloroquine alone or the drug combination, there was a much higher rate of reaching the 
endpoint. In other words, if you look at it crudely, that patients who received the drugs did much more poorly. However, the groups weren't comparable. The group that received the drugs was much more ill. And therefore, there maybe have been some reasons that caregivers were opting to give some patients one treatment or another. Now, we don't know what those reasons are, but if you take traditional risk factors for poor outcomes in COVID-19 and adjust the results, then it looks as if the results were statistically similar. So it didn't really seem to matter whether patients were treated or not. So does this mean that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work? It means that it's not very encouraging, but you certainly can't conclude that there's no effect of the drug. It could have some slight benefit, or it could be slightly deleterious. We can't rule either of those possibilities out given the data. What we can say is it's not a home run and it's not poison, but at best, we're going to see modest effects. I agree, Eric. I think that the challenge is, is those of us taking care of patients today need the best information to make decisions. Guidelines are built on the best available information available today. And these types of data help inform us that there isn't an obvious big effect of benefit or harm, although there may be effects in either direction you know, with more carefully collected data. And what I mean by that is these authors did the best they could in a retrospective assessment. And unfortunately, the bias of why patients are treated with this medication, which I don't believe is random, is very, very hard to control for an observational data, though they've done the best they can to minimize the impacts of those factors. And Eric, as you say, what these data do show us is there is no obvious curative effect, nor overwhelming harm. And that then lays the groundwork for more careful data to understand the effect, depending on what other treatments are out there that may be beneficial, and therefore how important is it to finally dissect out the risk-benefit ratio. So here's a softball question. What do we need to do to actually prove whether there's any benefit or any downside? Well, I think to see smaller effects, we'd need to do a very well-designed placebo-controlled randomized trial. And I think these are going on right now. We simply just don't have the results. And getting back to Lindsay's comments about guidance for clinicians, I think that's precisely the reason that we've chosen to publish work like this to help inform clinicians, even if it isn't the bottom line, last word on the topic. And we look forward to the results of the RCTs. High-quality data in this space are needed in all directions for all different therapies. And the importance of doing it well, which the ongoing studies in this space are doing, will be of great interest to the community. But what should clinicians be doing in the meantime? Well, that's the problem. Both Lindsay and I have treated patients, and there are many guidelines out there. Many of the guidelines actually included drugs like hydroxychloroquine and zithromycin but there are very few data out there to guide therapy. It's incredible that we're now many months into the outbreak and we don't have a sufficiently rigorous test of these treatments that are being so commonly used. And I think it's a general problem. It's not just hydroxychloroquine, it's almost any sort of intervention that we're using. I'm reminded of what happens in oncology. When patients present with a diagnosis of cancer to an academic medical center, they're almost always enrolled in a clinical trial. 
And I, I think we need that same sort of mindset in COVID-19. Since we don't know what we're doing, we should be figuring out what we should do and we should help our patients by helping us learn about what's right for them and for the next patient who comes along. Having been involved in creating guidelines, both for my hospital and with the Infectious Disease Society of America, creating the guideline has a different metronome than treating an individual patient, even though we would like it all to be the same. The guideline needs to be based on available evidence that are strong and directive. And when the evidence is not so clear, the guidelines need to reflect that. And what we publish as a journal also needs to reflect what the urgent clinical decision-making is and the best available evidence today. Because as a clinician at the bedside, I need whatever input I can have to make the best decision on how to treat this patient. And unfortunately, the one RCT out there helps me know what doesn't work. And what we all need in taking care of our patients is understanding what does work in what context at what dose, for what duration, in what format, which are not easy questions to answer. But the systematic collection of data, I think, will inform all of these efforts that I just mentioned. And I think that illustrates an issue. It's clear from this outbreak that we did not have a nimble enough research infrastructure to react, and that we couldn't start trials very rapidly as we needed to do and start learning very early on. And I think a lesson we need to take away from this outbreak, because it won't be the last outbreak, uh, perhaps not the last outbreak of our lifetimes, is that we should be anticipating and be ready to do the kind of research that's necessary to understand how to treat patients. And Eric, I think that, as you mentioned, that discussion has been going on. But I think what this event highlights for us is the urgency. The Ebola outbreak five years ago It took many months for RCTs to get launched and conducted. And there was much discussion globally, within countries, across the WHO, Welcome, CDC, NIH, Gates, many governmental and international and funding bodies about how to do this better. And roadmaps to do it better were created, and I think did help in the response to this event. But what occurred in this event that wasn't properly anticipated is the speed. Ebola and certain kinds of infections are transmitted not as quickly as a highly transmissible respiratory virus, like a coronavirus, like an influenza virus. So it's not unknown to us that highly transmissible global pandemics can occur, and we often discuss the 1918 flu. And I think that what we as a community have to take a good hard look at is how do we do this faster and how do we respond in a tempo that's proportionate to the pathogen and the disease it's causing. And this means when it pops up in a random place, whatever country, hospital, proper infrastructure, inadequate infrastructure, there is a mechanism to rapidly identify and then move in with high quality studies to be able to determine what does or doesn't work. This requires investigators and hospitals and IRBs, countries and regulatory agencies and international bodies to work together, which I think they have to some degree compared to what went on five, six years ago. But I agree it's woefully inadequate for what we as a community need to be able to do, given how pathogens spread. 
And the coronavirus has just exposed the inadequacies of our current system. The first results of the kinds of studies you're talking about are beginning to come out for another drug, the antiviral remdesivir. What are we learning there? Well, this has been an interesting week for remdesivir because we heard about the results of two placebo-controlled trials. The first one, which was published in The Lancet, was performed in China, and it was the same group that performed the lopinavir-ritonavir study. So it has a very similar design. Patients received either remdesivir or placebo, and they were followed for four weeks and scored for clinical improvement on the same scale that was used for the earlier study, which is an ordinal scale that the investigators had devised. There was good news and bad news from that study. The good news is that the epidemic was declining sharply in China at the time they performed it. From the study standpoint, though, that was kind of bad news because it meant they were unable to recruit to their target number of patients and therefore decided to stop the trial when it had limited statistical power to identify a difference between the two treatment groups. When it stopped, the remdesivir arm did better than the placebo arm, but it didn't reach statistical significance. And therefore, the trial is really inconclusive. It's hard to rule out a positive or a negative effect. What we've heard is the top-line results of the NIAID trial, which has not been published yet. In that placebo-controlled trial, which used a similar sort of endpoint, uh, we have heard that remdesivir did show a positive effect. It's a little bit difficult to evaluate the study. We know that based on these data, the FDA issued an emergency use authorization for remdesivir, allowing physicians to use it. I don't think I'd read too much into that since they also issued one for chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine drugs that don't appear to have so much of an effect in the current trials. So I think we await the details of that study to see how good remdesivir looked. I think that we all do await the placebo-controlled RCT data from the remdesivir study that you mentioned. And in seeing that, we'll all be able to better understand uh, what exactly was done, how the medication was given, what the nature of the response is, the side effects, and the integration of those observations as to the overall risk-benefit ratio. It's welcome news to see an encouraging result in a high-quality study design, and that welcome news will be affirmed when we see the data to know how to bring that into practice. I think that One of the challenges, Eric, with the remdesivir study in China, as you note, was the good news that the epidemic was controlled through public health measures. The bad news was the trial only partially enrolled, therefore was underpowered, and makes it a very difficult result to interpret in that light. We saw this happen with ZMAP in the Ebola outbreak five years ago. And in response to that, Study designs have been created to allow the continuation of studies across outbreaks with appropriate statistical design, DSMB, and proper oversight to allow the data to be sort of parked while the outbreak may end and another may begin to be able to continue the study to get a conclusive result so we know if a therapy works or not. I think we have to look at those models and look at them in a way to say, how do we extend studies across geographies? Multi-center studies do that, but we need to think about that in terms of single-center studies or single-country studies 
so that we're able to get conclusive results and not be left in limbo because of excellent public health interventions that stop transmission that must be encouraged and enabled. But we also need to know if therapies work so we know how to treat our patients. And I think both can be done. Just the design and conduct of these studies have to be looked at in that light. So altogether, what's the timeline look like? When are we going to see more about these therapies? Well, we hope they'll be soon. Uh, We certainly will see the results. I'm confident that the NIAID will release their results of their trial in detail relatively soon since it's all finished. And there are a lot of other RCTs going on. These include trials of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. And these studies might tell us more precisely whether or not there's an effect of these drugs. The problem, of course, is exactly what Lindsay was just discussing, which is, again, in this country and in Europe, we're seeing a decline in the number of cases, and therefore it's getting more and more challenging to enroll patients in studies. So it's not clear what we'll know unless or until there's a resurgence of disease. But I'm very hopeful that over the course of the next month or so, we will have some answers and those can help inform us going forward. I mean, Steve, there's a real challenge with speed versus completeness. So one may have a top line result of a trial, but not have completed follow-up or completed critical follow-up or have the data completely collected or cleaned or appropriate back and forths in the analyses. And it's incredibly challenging in the setting of a pandemic where we all want information immediately. As soon as something looks good or bad, we need to share it immediately, even if the data are incomplete. And that is a tension we will continue to struggle with. And I applaud our colleagues who have done the remdesivir studies for doing them, both in China and in the US, and for generating those data and sharing top-line results as early as possible. I do encourage them to make sure that they do the analyses properly so that we do fully know what they mean, balancing speed with completeness. And I look forward to seeing those results, but I do understand the challenges that the investigators have in threading that balance. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.